I used to tape $5 bills to empty pop cans and scatter them throughout the halls of high schools when I was in my 20s. I had a good reason to do it. I was a high school motivational speaker for years. And this? This was my shtick. See, between classes, I would skillfully place the garbage in various places on stairs or outside of doorways, intentionally provoking a student to either have to pick up the garbage or forcing them to walk around it. Now, the first time I did this, I thought for sure I was going to be out my $25 investment. But in fact, I went home with my money and the motivation to keep doing it. You see, when class would be over, the halls would fill up with students moving to the next class, and I was there in the hall, sitting against the lockers, watching. Thinking back, man, I definitely looked like a narc. But then after the class bell would ring, I would go around collecting all my pop cans and enter the class I was presenting and unload the cans on the desk and do my talk. I would ask the students if any of them saw the garbage in the halls on their way to class. Of course, the cool kids all at the back would put their hands up and say, yeah, not only did I see it, I kicked it down the hall. (laughs) I would flip the cans over and I would show them that if they just picked up the garbage, they might have had enough money to buy lunch or a pack of smokes. It was the late 90s, you know. This was a setup for my talk. I discovered, however, that as I would move from high school to high school, there were always those students who surprised me. I did lose my $25 investment a few times, occasionally, all to the same person. You see, the motivation wasn't supposed to be the money, but in the satisfaction of having behaviors that embody some sort of conviction. And the test was just rewarding those who had them and inspiring others, maybe, to get some. The scripture is filled with motivated people. The Easter story especially is filled with individuals who have some strong feelings about a lot of things. Some motivated towards beauty and wholeness, and others motivated more towards greed and protection. We see this incredible juxtaposition in this Easter story. This morning, I want us to look at a brief encounter Jesus has only two days before he was betrayed and crucified. The timing of the circumstances and the telling of this story are strategic. This is a story that is found in all three Gospels. Matthew and Mark's account are almost identical, but John, he shares some different details. Skeptics will often struggle with these differences and will use them to inform their skepticism. But listen, right off the bat, let's not get lost in the differences between these stories. Instead, let's get found in the similarities. It's not the specific details that matter as much as the universal truths this morning. Because in struggling with the details, we can end up missing the whole story. And we're going to use Mark and Matthew's accounts as our base this morning. Specifically Mark, as we've been following his chronological telling of the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And because his account is the oldest. So Mark, around chapter 14, recalls this awkward dinner with Jesus. He writes that only two days before Passover... There were some religious leaders who were so threatened by Jesus, they began seeking secretly for ways to have him killed. But they were also being careful as they knew that there would most likely be an uproar from the people. And so they needed to do this strategically. And they would involve the Roman legal system to accomplish this. And while that plot is happening in the background, Mark says that Jesus goes to the home of an individual in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. And he's found reclining around a table. It seems that this house is full of people. 
Mark says that the home belonged to Simon the leper. That's, that's a peculiar title for someone. It seems to me that Mark's readers are, are supposed to know who this is. There are many lepers who Jesus had healed, um, any, any number of Simons. So it sounds to me like this is more understood as Jesus was at Simon's house, you know, the leper that he healed. When John tells the same story, though, this is what's interesting. He says that the house is in Bethany, yes, but it belonged to Mary and Martha, and they shared this house with their brother Lazarus. And it is this Lazarus that John writes had died only days before this meal, and Jesus raised him from death to life. John's story describes this meal as a kind of celebration of sorts by Martha and Mary, a thank you for what Jesus had done for their brother Lazarus. Now, regardless of these differences, both accounts tell the story of a woman at this dinner who has an expensive alabaster jar of spikenard. This is an aromatic oil that is produced from a form of honeysuckle that grows in the Himalayas. This is an intensely aromatic oil and was expensive. It had to be. It was imported. Mark says that an unnamed woman breaks open this jar of pure spikenard, and then she proceeds to pour this oil over Jesus' head. Now, this act falls flat in our modern understanding. In fact, it, it may even seem offensive, actually, disruptive. But in this period in time, this would have been seen as an incredible act of hospitality by some. It was also used medicinally by others, this, the ancient Hebrews poured oil over the heads of individuals to proclaim royalty. In fact, the word Messiah literally means anointed one. And anointed means to make sacred, to smear with oil. And so this act has a lot of symbolism wrapped up in it. We aren't told um, by this woman of her motives, only how Jesus is perceiving her actions. And for him, it feels like an act of honor, an act of love, it is a bold move for sure, but not because she's pouring scented oil on somebody, but because of the value and the gratuitous use of it at this meal. Mark says that as she begins to pour the oil, there were some in the room watching and saying to themselves, why is this oil being wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. I think it's important to recognize that a single denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage. So 300 is a year's wages for somebody. This was expensive perfume. This was a, a bottle of Gucci. And Mark says that some in the room actually scolded her for doing this. And then Jesus responds to those who scold her. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Don't you... You know, don't you love it when we see this side of Jesus? You know, um, it's like he's saying, what business is this of yours? Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want to, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And she has done what she could. She has anointed my body before my burial, and truly I say to you that whenever the good news is proclaimed in the universe, what she has done will be told in her memory. What an awkward moment at dinner. Have you ever been in a room with a bunch of people misunderstanding each other and their motives? 
Have you ever been in a room when someone says what they were thinking, only to discover that perhaps what they were thinking was none of their business? I've done a series in the past called Awkward Dinners with Jesus because there are just so many times around a shared meal that Jesus finds himself in mixed company. And Jesus isn't afraid to confront hypocrisy or call people out when they are being unkind. But what makes the dinner so awkward is he stays. He stays. He stays for dinner. Which is more awkward? Jesus staying or because he loves them all? Or what he actually says, what he confronts? This passage that Mark's talking about brings with it some inerrant controversy on several fronts. One from the inside of the story, and one, I think, from the outside of the story. The controversy from the inside is this woman's actions that seem so gratuitous and even wasteful. The controversy from outside is Jesus' justifications of her generous extravagance by suggesting that the poor will always be among us, and that we will have lots of opportunities to serve them. I can understand both dilemmas. I think we need to be able to understand them both in order to truly appreciate the tension here. This woman's actions aren't done in silence. The musky, pungent smell would have permeated the entire house. While not off-putting, it sure would have been hard to ignore. John writes that the whole house smelled fragrant, probably for weeks. Jesus offers them a completely new way of holding this experience. He says to them, she's anointing my body for burial. Almost as if he's implying, you know, for three years I've been telling you that I'll be giving my life, that I will be killed in Jerusalem. He literally told his disciples on three separate occasions these very things. And Jesus was trying to prepare his followers for the events that will eventually come to pass, now only days away. And in this moment, it's as if Jesus is saying, this woman is the only one who believed me. Her actions misunderstood by all of you because she has not misunderstood me. She got it. She gets it. And she might be the only one. So of course she's misunderstood. How brave. How bold. How loving. And this act of faith, this act of belief, of trust, will be spoken about wherever the good news is shared, Jesus says. A bold statement for sure. And the fact that I am preaching from this passage just reinforces this point. He was right. And I love that this woman doesn't care what the others in the room think. Truthfully, it's her nard. (laughs) She can do with her nard what she wants to do. And you know what? You can do with your nard what you want to do. I can think of many wasteful things she could have done with it. I can think of a lot of ways that I misuse or don't use my nard to honor. I just keep it in my jar. I hope that you get that this is me being metaphorical. And for her, this act is significant and meaningful. And it becomes so for Jesus as well. So when John says the same story, the woman in his account is Mary, the sister of Martha. We remember her from another story about another meal in this same house. The one where Martha's in the kitchen making and preparing an amazing meal for Jesus, and Mary's just sitting at his feet soaking up all the stories. Martha's upset about it, but Mary doesn't care. In that story, Martha misunderstands that people can appreciate Jesus in different ways. 
I know Jesus was going to appreciate all Martha was preparing in the kitchen, for sure. That story was about Martha appreciating that Mary needed something different than her. And she was self-aware enough and bold enough and willing enough to be misunderstood to receive it. So it should be no surprise when we read John's account that this, this is our Mary. It doesn't matter that, that Mark leaves her unnamed or that John calls her out. This is a bold woman. And she is a wonderful example of us learning to stop living our lives for other people. Mary seems to have gotten used to being misunderstood. She isn't going to let that stop her from living. There's something here for all of us. Obviously, within reason, we do need the wisdom of community to help us through conflicting and confusing moments in our lives, for sure. But there are times when we also need to be willing to stand for something and to be prepared to be misunderstood in doing it. In terms of the controversy from without, regarding Jesus' words about the poor always being among us, in Mark's account, there are those around the table who are upset at this woman's actions. In John's telling at Mary and Martha's, it's actually Judas who's upset about this terrible waste of resources. And John records that Judas protests, but not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he's about to betray Jesus. But Jesus' response is the same in both accounts. There's so much more I could say to try and vindicate what critics have called an apathetic approach to poverty by Jesus here, believe it or not. But in the context of Jesus' entire ministry, recognizing who most of his followers were, what his unbelievable message to the impoverished and the hurting was, this kind of, these kind of di- disparaging comments of Jesus don't have a leg to stand on. But I love Kurt Vonnegut's take on this. Yeah, you heard me say that right. Kurt Vonnegut, the American author who you might be surprised to discover that he has something to say about this exact scripture verse. You'd be surprised because Kurt isn't a Christian, wasn't a Christian, but he was enamored by Jesus. He actually called himself a Christ-worshipping agnostic. He was not religious at all, but studied the Sermon on the Mount. And he couldn't let go of these teachings of Jesus, specifically the Beatitudes. And he was bothered by what he saw as an unchristian impatience with the poor, that he felt was encouraged by this verse specifically understood wrongly. And so he did his own research and felt that this was a passage about hypocrisy. And he writes that this encounter for him is Jesus making a joke almost, He's trying to remain civil to Judas, but to also chide him for his hypocrisy at the same time. Here's Kurt's interpretation of Jesus' response to Judas when Judas criticizes Mary for wasting this oil. Jesus says, Judas, don't worry about it. There will be plenty of poor people left long after I'm gone. Kurt felt this was a better way of harmonizing Jesus' words with his life. And you know what? I couldn't agree more. But there's one other thing that caught me in this story. We all see Jesus in this room, and now we can smell him. There's this woman, possibly Mary, who has, in this beautiful act, accepted that she will be misunderstood for her actions. It will not only be Jesus who will smell of this Himalayan oil, but her actions will come back to her in several days on the other side of death and chaos. 
Her sense of smell will remind her of a beauty that she won't be able to see or touch. She is the one who believed Jesus. And in this room, there are those who misunderstand her. Mark says many were indignant. John writes that it was just Judas. But are we surprised by any of these characters that we're reading about? Jesus, Mary, Judas, Simon the leper? No, we shouldn't be. It's not just those who are in need, the impoverished that we will constantly have in our lives. Like Jesus says, but it will also be those who will act boldly. It will also be those who criticize anyone who thinks different than them. Those people will always be in our lives too. This story is filled with stereotypes, patterns of people and the way they think and act. And I don't know if you found yourself around this table yet, but let me tell you where I find myself in this story this morning, where I want to now find myself in this story. A story where, if we're all honest, it's probably easier for us to identify with Judas than it is with Mary. If we're honest, that's probably true. Too many people who call themselves Christians think that they have the gift of the critical spirit. But when Mark tells the story, he writes that after this woman breaks this flask, this alabaster jar, and she begins to pour it on Jesus, that there were some who were upset. Do you know what that means? That means that there were some that weren't upset. Look around the table in this story. Do you see who else is in this room? We have Jesus, we have the woman, we have those who are upset, and we have the rest. Those who are bearing witness to the extravagant love, witnessing the first one to believe Jesus and what he has told them will happen. This story assumes that there are those who experienced this encounter and left with the fragrance of her actions on their clothes. Some left with the fragrance of her faith embedded in their hearts. There are those present who possibly on this day believed as well after what they saw. Some were learning to live vicariously through the actions of another. I think it's important for us to see these others around the table. They're always present in all the gospel stories because they're present in our lives and they're us. When Jesus frees a man with a demonic spirit in a synagogue one Sabbath and those in charge get upset at him, we forget that the majority of the room wasn't upset. When we read that there are some Jewish religious leaders seeking to kill Jesus, sometimes we forget that the majority weren't trying to kill Jesus. It isn't Jesus against Judaism. It was privilege, fear, hatred, and intolerance against hope and love and God's welcoming kingdom. This story reminds us that when we are moved by God to act in loving ways, there will always be those who misunderstand us, so let it go. They're not your problem. I'm learning at times to break open my nard to pour it out for others. And at times when my nard is all gone, I'm living vicariously through the bold actions and ideas of others who are bravely responding to what they are discovering about God. And above all, my sense of smell is, is expanding. I know what justice smells like, what hope smells like, what forgiveness smells like, what tolerance and kindness. These are all so fragrant, they inspire and motivate and transform. Just bearing witness to these acts in our world leave us smelling the same. 
And the story invites us to leave the stench of arrogance and self-righteousness, to walk away from judgmentalism and intolerance and leave, with, leave it behind as the smell of garbage that it is. In a few weeks, as we bear witness to all Jesus is preparing us for, and we will discover for ourselves, if we're ready to learn, that the fragrance of love is even stronger than the stench of death. Thank you.